0: Well, take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, and we come to really the Mount Everest and the Himalayas of all of the texts in the Word of God, and certainly the climax to the book of Mark, and that is a look at the cross, the crucifixion. We're looking at verses 21 to 47. It comprises one unit, and to break it down would be, I think, a disservice to come back week after week, and Jesus is still on the cross. So we are going to watch this wonderful and horrific event together this afternoon. Mark chapter 15, follow as I begin reading in verse 21, but picking up at the end of verse 20... They led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but... He did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the king of Israel now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him, take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and, and breathed his last the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and, Joseph's and Salome, Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoned the centurion. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. The cross on which Jesus of Nazareth died, the place where he suffered, those six hours on the Roman cross are the focal point of the Christian faith. The cross is the centerpiece of the gospel. It's the means of our salvation. The cross is where God distinctly, definitively, and once for all dealt with the problem of man's sin, made provision for eternal salvation. And after two years of studying the gospel of Mark, we have come to the climax, which is the cross. It's the climax in all four Gospels. It should surprise us not that it is Mark's as well. We see a different set of details in each one of the Gospel writers' account of the cross. They all compose a composite picture of this dreadful event. And though we will hear things today from Matthew and from Luke and from John... We're going to hear specifically in this study of Mark's account of the cross as he chronicled the event. Said another way, we're going to study Mark's account of the cross and not attempt to study the event itself by harmonizing all the gospels. That will be for another time, and I'll look forward to that. Surprisingly, this narrative of the cross is written with an incredible economy of words. The most important event in history we can read in just a few moments. Mark takes and makes no attempt to sensationalize this event. He makes no attempt to generate sympathy for Jesus' suffering in this event. He doesn't detail the physical atrocities of crucifixion, nor does he solicit hatred toward the enemies of Jesus, the ones who put him on the cross. James Brooks, wonderful commentator on the book of Mark, says this, Quote, Unlike some sermons, modern sermons, no attempt is made to describe the physical sufferings of Jesus. Far more important for Mark is the significance of those sufferings, end quote. And he's right. This is the same for all four accounts. The cross is described with amazing brevity, lack of detail that we would long for. And I think that we take away from that that the point is not for us to experience a sensationalized emotion about the cross and its sufferings, as horrible as that is, but the love that Jesus expressed in willingness to take on those sufferings. Mark crafted this sermon, this narrative rather, as a reference point for the theology of the rest of the New Testament. This is that event that the, the apostles will write about in coming weeks and months and years and decades ahead. Mark's careful and deliberate to inform us at several places in this narrative the true meaning of the cross. And a couple of those will surprise you. So we're going to outline Mark's narrative by breaking it down into three simple scenes. That's the way it breaks down. Three scenes. Three astounding scenes at the cross of Jesus. I gotta confess, I, I looked for an adjective. Astounding, astonishing, unbelievable, sensational. I, I couldn't find the right adjective. Three astounding scenes at the cross. The first is in verses 21 to 32. His shameful crucifixion. His shameful crucifixion. This crucifixion was not just intended to kill him. It was intended to put him to shame Verse 21, they led him out to crucify him, the end of verse 20. Verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country. There's a man here who has come from the outskirts of Jerusalem, out in what they would call the wilderness area, the country, toward the city and walks right into this mob scene, taking Jesus out to kill him. And God has a plan for this man. We find out his name, Simon is Serene, a little area on the northern coast of Africa. He, but we also find out he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was enlisted to carry or bear the crossbeam of the cross for Jesus. Now, verse 20 tells us that after the trials with Annas and then Caiaphas and then Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate again, after the Roman soldiers mocked him as king, did a, a cruel play about him, they led him out to crucify him. A little background. Just stop to remember where we are. Jesus has been up all night. He's been repeatedly beaten by Jewish enemies at both trials. He has been slapped and punched and spat upon over and over in each phase of these trials. With the Roman trials, all three phases, he was beaten. He has been scourged, which we looked at last time, meant that they used a whip with pieces of bone and glass and metal at the end, and they would hit the the victim with such force that it would hook like Massive trouble hooks into the back of the victim and rip pieces of his back off so severe it was that it could expose ribs and even kidneys the internal organs some of those were intended to go lashing around and would lacerate the arms and come around the chest and grab pieces of flesh and pull it off as well he's been beaten with a rod in the head After having a crown of four inch thorns placed upon it, he's had an incredible loss of blood from the scourging alone. No doubt, bleeding from eyes and nose and mouth. Jesus is physically weakened, traumatized. How weak? It was customary for a victim to carry his cross to the crucifixion site and apparently Jesus, we put the other gospels together, attempted this but collapsed. Exhaustion, injuries, blood loss weakened him to the point where he cannot carry the 40-pound crossbeam the 600 yards from the Antonia Fortress out to Golgotha. And he collapses. There was an African man there, likely a man of color, who was in the crowd, just walking through, a passerby, no intention of even being there at that moment, except that God wanted him there at that moment. Simon. He could have been a God-fearer who was from North Africa, probably, a, 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 as I said, a man of color who would have come up to celebrate the Passover, or he could have been a Jew who was living in that northern African area. Nonetheless, he was there during the Passover celebration. Coming from the country simply meant he was entering the city. But Mark describes him really uniquely. He uses three descriptors. We know his name and the name of his two sons. If you study the book of Mark intently and look at how Mark describes people, this is extremely rare. We rarely get even this much color on the apostles, on the disciples. Why? It seems obvious that Mark is referencing someone that the people who are reading his letter, his, his, his gospel, knows. Some of the readers knew his family, Simon's family. Remember, he's writing for a Roman audience. This is likely delivered to the church at Rome. And when we see Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 13, he writes to Rufus, a man named Rufus. Scholars agree it is highly likely that Rufus is the son of this Simon, the Cyrene, who carried the crossbeam of Jesus, who's now relocated to Rome. Verse 22, they brought him to the place Golgotha. It's just translated the place of a skull. Why is that? Well, there are two sites that have been identified as possible sites for this in the area outside Jerusalem. One is called Gordon's Calvary, that's where the Garden Tomb is. The other is the site underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I think that's the likely site. This was a, a site that was celebrated as the site of the crucifixion and the burial, which is just right underneath that site. It was celebrated as such since AD 326. No one can know with absolute certainty, but I think that's the likely place. The church is built on an outcropping, a, a, a stone dome that looks like the top of a skull. It's still exposed today. Many of you have been there and you've seen where you can see through the glass and observe that rock. It's about 600 yards from the Antonia Fortress where he was scourged and flogged and mocked by the soldiers. Verse 23, they get him to the site, and in a last, a last act of mercy, they try to sedate him and give him a pain reliever, a painkiller. They tried, emphasis on tried, to give him wine mixed with myrrh, verse 23, but he, he would not, he did not take it. This was a strong drugged wine intended as a mercy for the pain and suffering of the one crucified, the last extension of mercy to a victim. But Jesus refused it. Why? He would do nothing to ease the pain of taking our pain and punishment as horrific as is the judgment that you and I deserve, Jesus would not be sedated to take that for you and me. And in very simple words, verse 24, and they crucified him. History tells us that crucifixion was the cruelest, most horrifying form of execution The Romans perfected it, but they did not invent it. The Persians had a form of crucifixion that was adopted by the uh, Carthaginians and the Romans took it, perfected it, made it more horrific, changed from lashing and and, um, uh, tying the victim to nailing them to the cross. And in the annals of history... Crucifixion was one of the most feared and horrifying forms of execution devised. Mark's restraint here is remarkable. He gives us no description of the crucifixion. Why? It wasn't because he he was resistant to do that, but everyone in that day knew what crucifixion was. They saw them often. They were typically done at major crossroads so that people could have deterrence. His audience, no doubt, understood crucifixion, but we are not his audience. Most of you know this. The condemned would first be flogged or scourged, and that was to weaken them so death would be quickened and hastened. This was not so much as a mercy to them, as much as it was the Roman soldiers didn't want to wait around for the guy to die. Sometimes it would take two to four days for a man to die who was lashed to a cross. So they would try to beat him almost to death so that it wouldn't take long for him to die on the cross. The accused was then lashed or nailed to the cross. We have historical accounts of both. But we know for sure that Jesus was nailed because John 20, 25 says they nailed him to the cross. So does Acts 2, 23 and Colossians 2, 14. There were different configurations of crucifixes, of crosses. Some were in the form of an X, and the victim was splayed out. Most, however, in the area of Judea were historically in the shape of a T, form of a T, with the crossbar near the top of the vertical pole. All tradition points to this being the type of cross to which Jesus was nailed. The victim was nailed right behind the wrist and the forearm because it would hold, the hands would likely rip through, so it was, says Jesus was nailed in his hands, that, that word means your entire, from your elbow down, into the forearms where it would hold, sometimes high, sometimes low, and in the feet, this this was interesting to me, they would put the heels on top of each other and parallel the foot to the cross and nail through the heel bone into the cross so that the victim was was arched in the shape of an S. And that was so that they could push up to get a breath because ultimately a cross was death by suffocation. The victim couldn't pull up to take a deep breath and finally, under the weakness, would just fall to exhaustion and not be able to breathe. Death could be hastened by breaking the legs of the criminal, that way he couldn't push up anymore and would suffocate immediately. That's what happened to the two other criminals in this situation. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus was already dead, which fulfilled the prophecy that no bone of his would be broken. The significance of Jesus dying on a cross on a piece of wood on a tree was theologically significant, and the Jews knew this. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, cursed is the one who dies on a tree. I think the chief priests in the crowd demanded the death of Jesus and kept crying, crucify him, crucify him, because they knew the one who died on a tree, on a cross, was accursed by God. And Galatians 3.13 says, he was instead of us. He was a curse for us. He was accursed for us. At the end of verse 24, we find out what's going on with these soldiers. Four soldiers and a centurion comprised the execution squad. They divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. They're throwing dice at the foot of the cross. Who gets his inner robe? Who gets his outer robe? Who gets his head covering? I'll roll you dice for it. It was a legal right of Roman guards at an execution to claim the possessions of an executed man. Jesus didn't have any except the clothes he was wearing. Can you imagine that? His values were such that when he came to the moment of death, the only thing he owned was was what he was wearing this was a fulfillment by the way they didn't know it of psalm 22:18 they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots that's exactly what they did Mark gives us a time reference in verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. That's 9 a.m. Now, if you're looking at a harmony of the Gospels, if you're looking at different um, scenes of the cross from different uh, angles from the Gospel writers, you'll you'll note and notice that there's an apparent contradiction because John 19.14 says it was the sixth hour when Pilate sentenced Jesus earlier that morning. But it does not contradict what Mark says here. John was using the Roman method of counting hours, and Mark was using the Jewish clock. It's really simple. John consistently does that throughout his gospel. Mark consistently uses the Jewish uh, throughout his gospel. It's not a contradiction, just a different way of telling time. It's about 9 a.m. they nail him to the cross. 9 a.m., and he will suffer for six hours. Imagine the moment you woke up this morning being nailed to a cross and you would still be on it right now. Verse 26 tells us an interesting fact. When a man was crucified, the crimes he had committed were written or inscribed on a placard, a plaque hung above his head on the cross. The inscription of that charge against him read, verse 26, the king of the Jews highlighting the irony. Mark is bringing this irony to incredible focus that the charge against him was true. The crime they said he committed, he committed but it was no crime to be who he was. He wasn't crucified alone. All four Gospels record the fact that he was crucified between two other robbers they crucified two robbers with him verse 27 one on his right one on his left he was in the center mark's intentions and brevity don't allow him the space to address the full interaction he had with both of these robbers and particularly one we'll find out in a moment they were both casting abuse and hurling insults at him. But one of them, we find out later through the pen of John, actually repented and asked to be with Jesus in heaven and paradise that day and Jesus granted that faith. Why? Doesn't this seem a little bit anticlimactic that the great event of human history, God would have him crucify with two criminals? Mark continues to tell us that all of this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 28, the scripture was fulfilled saying he was numbered with the transgressors. That's exactly what Isaiah 53, 12 said. He would be numbered with the transgressors, considered with the criminals. He was crucified with two robbers. Verse 29, those passing by just walking by the crucifixion site. This would have been on the road out of Jerusalem and um, uh, the, the northwest, the Antonio Fortress that would have gone northwest, back and forth. In fact, that pastor by si- Simon was walking on the road coming into Jerusalem on that road. Passers by were hurling abuse at him, shame, wagging their heads. And now we find out what they thought about Jesus and how they knew him. Ha, aha. You, who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down for the cross. That's one of the crimes that they accused Jesus of as saying he would be an insurrectionist and tear down the temple, the place of worship, the place of sacrifice, the place where the atonement of sins was made every year and where sacrifices were made every day, the place where God met with man. They understood him to say, I will destroy it. Back in John chapter 2 verses 19 to 21 when he said this two years earlier and they picked up on it was not talking about the temple of Jerusalem but the text says he was speaking of his body. Tear down this tent I live in, this tabernacle I live in, this, this temple I live in and, and I'll rebuild it. I will I'll rise from the dead three days later. and they mock him, save yourself, come down from the cross. The passers-by are echoing the false charge made during Jesus' trial back in chapter 14, verse 58. But there's a problem. They heard what Jesus said, but they misinterpreted what it meant. We have to be really careful to hear the words of the Lord and to interpret what they mean in their original sense. It gets worse in verse 31. It's just the passers-by who are doing it, but now the chief priests and the scribes, those wicked conspirators who have worked all week to try to get Jesus crucified, and now they have, they are there mocking Him. And they're saying among themselves... He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Interesting moment. These leaders acknowledge and openly say that Jesus saved and helped others. He had raised the dead. He had healed the sick. He had made the blind see and the deaf hear. he had healed leprosy. He had healed limbs that were out of joint, out of socket, and deformed And most recently, just a few months earlier, he had raised Lazarus from the dead just two miles from here. Save them. Saying amongst themselves, saying to the crowd, here's the miracle worker, trying to undermine everything Jesus had had, had done, basically saying if he can't do what ought to be done for himself and save himself, he should have no credibility on what you think he's done in the past. But instead of seeing Jesus use his power and he had options he could have called every angel in heaven to come and deliver him. He could have said God deliver me. He could have used his miraculous power to rip the nails from the cross and come back and take vengeance, but he didn't. Here's the, the irony. If Jesus had done what they dared and challenged him to do, he would save himself and no one else. But because he stayed on the cross, he didn't save himself so that he could save us. Can you think about it this way? They said perform a miracle. And it might be that the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was the non-miracle of not having a miracle and staying on the cross. They're challenging him to abandon his victory in the race he has faithfully run, as he is crossing the finish line and breaking the victory ribbon, and they say, Stop now and save yourself. And he could have, but he wouldn't have. Why? What kept him there is what put him there. Love. He demonstrated God demonstrates his own love in the while we sinners, Christ died. Mark 10:45, Jesus said, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many if he were to bail out on giving his life up. Now, there would have never been salvation. He stayed there because of love. (laughs) And those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Mark doesn't tell us, but one of those thieves will come to his senses, realize after watching Jesus suffer and die that he is not suffering and dying like he is, would understand the reality of who he was and beg for salvation, and Jesus would grant it but that's another gospel and another time sermon. Interesting, the height of the crosses in that era varied widely depending on the circumstances. Normally the cross was ground high. What I mean by that is the, the, the criminal's feet were only inches off of the ground and you were looking straight into their eyes. Higher crosses, though, would be constructed to make the victim higher and more visible to more people. The description here, twice in the text, it says, come down from the cross. Indicates that Jesus was on a high, lifted up cross. In fact, in verse 36, someone offers him a sponge with a drink on it, and they could not reach his lips, so they have to give an extension, a reed, to get it high enough to put it on his lips. He did not respond to their insults. 1 Peter chapter two, verse 23. When being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But we find out from Peter what was going on in the mind of the Lord, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And then Peter says, because he suffered for you like this, take that example and suffer by entrusting yourself the one who judges righteously as well. It was a shameful, intended to be a mocking crucifixion. The second astounding scene at the cross is his efficacious death. Efficacious is a big word, but it's a theological word. It means effective. It accomplished what he intended. Efficacious death. Verse 233 When the sixth hour came, that's about noon, 12 noon, Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. Not much is told to us. The, the gospel writers all talk about this darkness. We, we don't know anything about it. It was likely a supernatural darkness. A few years ago, uh, several of you remember, we had a total eclipse come through uh, Kansas City and, and uh, several of us went out together and watched that it was odd and eerie to be standing in the middle of the day and it be dark that's what happened here but it was a supernaturally induced darkness you had to realize that people for three hours were looking around going this is this hasn't happened before day becomes night verse 34 at the ninth hour at three Jesus cried out with a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani that should sound like a foreign language because it is it's Aramaic it was the lingua franc it's what everyone spoke The people in Rome would not have known Aramaic, so Mark translates that for them and puts it into Greek. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders heard it. They began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. Mark quotes what Jesus utters in Aramaic, translates it into Greek, which was a translation of the Hebrew. It's a quotation of Psalm 21. Now, this is interesting because in Hebrew, the word Elijah and the word Elohim have Eloi in them. He was quoting David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They misheard him and mistook him to be calling for Elijah. That shouldn't be a surprise. Why? Why? Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they go up with Jesus. Two men show up. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. You think they kept that to themselves? It was likely that people knew, had the rumor, Jesus met with those three men, with Elijah. They were also expecting the second coming of Elijah, he would be reincarnated. All of this kind of blended together and they were wondering, is he calling for Elijah and is Elijah going to show up? This, however, is the theological significance of the cross. If you put all four Gospels together, Jesus prays several times. And when he does, he addresses God is Father. Father, forgive them. They they don't know what they're doing. In this moment, he cannot address God as Father because he's been abandoned by God the Father. He knows it. He feels the weight of it. He understands the judgment that he is experiencing on behalf of us underneath God's wrath. He says, God, God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? I'm your son. There's an answer for that. He was forsaken so that you and I wouldn't have to be He was judged that we might be rewarded. He was killed that we might live. He suffered that we might be healed. This cry that Mark accents, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the uh, theological epicenter of this, this whole text. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge. They obviously think he's delirious, screaming out for Elijah. They get a sponge with some sour wine. They just want to put him out of his misery. But notice they put it on a reed and lifted it up, gave him a drink, gave it to him to drink. Let's see if whether Elijah will come and take him down. So the, they had the reed that would extend to his up to where Jesus was and they wanted to see if Elijah would bring him down, indicating that he was on a higher cross. But verse 37 marks the end. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't identify the loud cry, but John does. He screams with a loud voice, it is finished. This is physically significant. He is dying of suffocation. A man dying of suffocation should not have the energy to scream out. But he does. You know why? Because he is not being killed as much as he is giving up his life. John 1913 says at this moment Jesus gave up his spirit. The breathless Savior screams out it is finished. What's finished? The work of salvation, payment for sins, propitiation. so in verse 37 the Lord's life comes to an end the Son of God dies amazing love how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me and in a real sense the world will stop until Sunday morning in a very interesting theological shift Mark changes the camera angle from looking at the cross to go to going six hundred yards away from there to the temple. And we notice this phenomenon verse thirty eight. And the veil of the temple was torn in two pieces from top to bottom. Now, as the heart of the Son of God stops, several supernatural phenomena occur. Mark only records this one. For example, he does not mention that there was an immediate severe earthquake strong enough to where massive rocks were split in two. He doesn't mention the fact that deceased believers are resurrected and walk around and talk to people. But Mark does highlight this and it's significant based on my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is all stitched together in theological significance. The supernatural ripping of the curtain from top to bottom indicates something theological. Let me tell you about this curtain. It was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This curtain was 60 feet high 30 feet wide it was only passed through once a year by one man only and it was so dangerous they would put bells around the high priest's uh, uh, robe because if God was angry and killed him they would they they had a rope around his ankle so they could pull him out and they wouldn't have to go in there and be with a dangerous God so if the bell stopped they would use that rope to pull him out that's how fearful they were of this moment It was the place where man stood with the presence of God. Think about that. The place where man stood in the presence of God Almighty. And when Jesus' heart stops beating, God ripped that veil, that barrier between God and people. In two, and he rips it from top to bottom, meaning there were eyewitnesses who saw this. It was also made of uh, uh, layers of cloth that were about four inches thick. Think of a four by four, how thick this was, ripped from top to bottom. The supernatural ripping of this curtain signified that God's people now have direct, unhindered access to God's intimate presence through Jesus. You had to wonder what people were talking about in the coming days as they kind of reverse engineered all these events and the timing of them. The earthquake, the ripping, the Uncle John who died and I just had lunch with him. These were odd times. And then we see a miracle, verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was The Son of God. There's an entire Christology class in that statement. Fully God, truly man. Man was the Son of God. Remember last week I described to you the group that made up the execution force for a Roman crucifixion. It was comprised of four soldiers overseen by a centurion, a high-ranking officer in the Roman army. This would have been the squad that was escorting Jesus to the site of crucifixion in verse 20. The centurion who's overseeing the whole, the whole thing. Apparently, when these men, his four men, are gambling, they're rolling dice for Jesus' possessions at the foot of his cross. Not the centurion. He's listening. He's watching. He's gazing. He's taken. He had been paying attention to Jesus as he suffered and as he he died he witnessed the darkness, he felt the earthquake, he observed the way Jesus loved his tormentors cared for his mother, the character of God's son as he handled torture and ridicule and impending death his conclusion surely truly for certain this man was God's son He was innocent, Luke tells us. He said, he's God's son and he was innocent. It's interesting that the Roman commander creates the bookend to the gospel of Mark. Verse one of Mark's gospel, take you way back two years ago. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the end of his ministry, the end of his life, the conclusion of the centurion, this man was the Son of God. He affirms the charge they made against Jesus in 1464 where they said, you are committing blasphemy, making yourself out to be God's equal, namely the Son of God. Verse 40. There were some women, I love this phrase, some women some women looking on from a distance. Surely the crowd had gathered around Jesus to see him suffer and die. They were elbowed to the fringes, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, we found out about these women, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Just let me... Fix something in your mind. They came from the north in Galilee, which is north, but they came up to Jerusalem because it was a high point. They they went up because it was higher. And here's these women. John records that some of the women, along with the Apostle John, initially gathered right near the cross, but they were probably by the soldiers moved to the outskirts. They've withdrawn to a distance. Can you imagine their discouragement, their disillusionment, their devastation as they watched their Lord suffer and die? Can you imagine the doubts? Were we we wrong? Were we wrong to put our faith in him? Mark focuses on three of these women. Mary Magdalene, she was the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons in Luke 8.2. Second was Mary, the mother of James the less and Joseph. This is just one of the Marys. By the way, just a little footnote, there are at least six Marys in the New Testament and it's sometimes really hard to find out which Mary is being talked about. It takes some detective work to, to pull this off. This is the mother of James, who was one of the 12, also the son of Alphaeus, And then a woman named Salome. The Bible is often accused and Christianity often suffers from the ridicule that it is pro-male and anti-female, that it is uh, uh, all masculine and anti-feminine and it's against women. Can I just suggest that this text blows that theory out of the water? Jesus is dying. Who were the only faithful people to stick with him till his last breath? Oh, John was there, we find out. But it was largely a group of women. The 12 apostles, the, the 12 men, one's on the run for his life and will soon commit suicide. But it's Judas. The other 10 hiding. Not these ladies, not these women. They identify with Christ to the very end knowing it could cost them their very lives. God acknowledges these women and I pray that we have a church full of women like this who will stand for their Lord no matter what. These ladies did. Next week, we're gonna see that the faithful few who came back to see Jesus and anoint him were indeed women. But that's for next week. Third scene here is his verified burial. It's verified burial. We'll come back and pick some of this up next week. Verified because it was important now that it's proven that Jesus is dead Because a lot of theories, according to Matthew, are going to circulate that the body was stolen, that he didn't really die, that he just swooned, he just passed out. When evening had already come, that is between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., it hadn't become sunset yet because that would initiate the Sabbath. Jesus has to be buried before the Sabbath, both because it would be a curse for him to stay on the tree on the Sabbath. And secondly, he had to be in the grave three days. That was his prophecy Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He had to be in the grave for parts of those three days. It's a marker for timing. Evening had come. After three, he's died. Because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, we know it's Friday. Then Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43. What an interesting man. A prominent member of the council. This is interesting. What's the council? This is the Sanhedrin who just pronounced judgment on Jesus a few hours earlier. And Joseph of Arimathea was a part of that council. Where was he? That's a good question. Where was he? Well, remember, this was done illegally at night, incognito. We find out that he was looking for the for the coming kingdom. They no doubt knew that Joseph was a follower of Jesus. And would it make anyone surprised to know that they might not have waken him up in the him up in the middle of the night? But he shows up here. Member of the council, the Sanhedrin, waiting for the kingdom of God, a God-fearing. Obedient Jew. the very counsel that earlier, falsely accused, wrongly convicted, illegally sentenced Jesus, he seems to have had no part in. Luke tells us in Luke 23:50 that he was a good and righteous man who had been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. Highly unlikely he was at that trial. I love this. He gathered up courage. Literally, he dared to. Got his nerve up. And he went in before Pilate. That's a big deal. Not any average Jew could could have an audience with Pilate. He could because he was a member of the council and no doubt known to Pilate. He goes in before Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Jesus. Verse 44, we find out a little insight into Pilate. What has he been doing all afternoon? Pilate wondered if Jesus was dead by this time. Literally, it, he, he was puzzled that Jesus was dead by this time. Most who would stay on a cross would be their days. And summoning the centurion, he questioned the centurion as to whether he was already dead. Now, this is important. This centurion, think about one of his job descriptions. He was in charge of executions and crucifixions. Do you think he made mistakes about whether the criminal was dead or not? The other gospel writers tell us that he was stabbed with a sword to make sure he was dead. They broke the legs of the other two criminals who were still breathing so that they would suffocate They didn't have to break Jesus' legs. He was dead. Pilate is surprised that he was dead after only six hours. And before granting uh, uh, the body to Joseph, he checks with the centurion just to make sure he is dead, isn't he? He affirmed it. And you can only imagine that what Joseph is about to do would raise the anger and ire of that council. Ascertaining verse 45 this from the centurion that he was truly dead, he granted the body to Joseph. And then this precious scene, verse 46. Joseph bought a linen cloth, a new one. He bought it. It was brand new. It's expensive. He took him down. I just this scene just pulls my heart out. They had to unhitch. The crossbeam. And then before they did that, they had to un-nail, take the nails out of his feet, and lay him down and pull the nails out of his forearms. And he takes that limp body that he loved, wraps him in a linen cloth. Laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This was, if you take the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as legitimate, which I frankly do, it was just a dozen or so yards, 20 yards from the cross. Brand new grave. Belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, member of the council, so we know he was wealthy. He wraps him up. Criminals executed by crucifixion were usually denied a dignified burial. Their bodies were dumped into a mass grave. However, Joseph's love and care for Jesus in this moment lead him to take action so that Jesus receives a proper burial. Matthew, Matthew, by the way, tells us he was a rich man. Little did Joseph know, little did Joseph know, you have to think he knew later that he was actually fulfilling prophecy in this caring for Jesus' burial. Isaiah 53, 9 predicted that the suffering servant would have his grave assigned with wicked men, right and left, yet he was with a rich man in his death. But there's something else happening here. Jesus is buried on Friday before sunset. Remember, the Sabbath, Saturday, began at sunset. He is quickly buried. And because of that timing, he's in the grave for part of three days, which is exactly what he had prophesied. The Jews didn't embalm their dead. Jesus is wrapped by a linen cloth. These were broken down into strips, soaked and packed with aromatic spices to combat the odors of decomposition. Remember when he raised Lazarus? They said, surely he stinks by now, Lord. This was to try to mitigate that. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking to see where he was laid. That's important. And you'll know that next week. It's clear from all four Gospels that Jesus' burial was done quickly to prevent him from being on the cross during the Sabbath, which would have happened at sundown. The anointing of Jesus' body was incomplete, it was rushed. He wrapped him, he put spices in, he put soaked cloth in, but it wasn't finished. He was going to need, his body would need more attention for a proper anointed burial. And these women watched carefully where the Lord was buried so that they could come and finish anointing his body for that proper Jewish burial. Luke tells us these women that night were preparing their own spices for Sunday morning to come back and finish what Joseph started. they took note that grave with that heavy stone we'll find out about that next week that heavy stone rolled across it which would present a challenge for a couple of women to move and the discovery they're going to make on Sunday morning is going to change the world You know, when we think of the cross, we're compelled to identify with the physical pains of torture and death, the death event itself. But for Mark and the other gospel writers, it's more important to understand why he died, not all the details of his death. It was bearing the sin and suffering, the abandonment from God, that was traumatic Why did this have to happen? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 3, Jesus died once for sins. He died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, listen, so that he might bring us to God. That's the reason, 1 Peter 3, 18. He died to bring us to God. He died that we could live. He died as punishment for our sin, Paul said while we were still helpless in Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But, but, God demonstrates his own, here's the motive, love, his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died instead of us. He died as a gift for us. As our substitute. The wages of sin is death and Jesus said, I'll pay that wage for those who put their, put their faith in me. You know the song? Bearing shame and scoffing, rude, rude scoffing, In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Do you know the last last line? Hallelujah. What a savior. And spoiler alert, he doesn't stay dead. But you gotta come back next week to hear that story. Man, do you know this savior? Do you feel his love? Do you know his love? Have you experienced his substitute for you? If you have, hallelujah, what a savior. And if you haven't, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not a Christian, this of all days is a day to hear what God's word has said and said, that's what I believe, that's what I want, that's the Lord I want to serve and follow all the days of my life. If that's your Desire and question, please don't leave the room without talking to someone. You can talk to any of the people around you. I'd be glad to talk to you. Make this the day of of your salvation. Don't walk, run, run to this cross and find forgiveness that's offered to you with the doors of mercy swung open wide, the curtain torn in two, access to God through Christ run there today.